Hi, I'm Kendall Gilding and welcome to My 30 Minutes with Erin Holland. Erin found fame as the winner of Miss World Australia in 2013, but she's not your typical beauty queen. Since then, she's carved out an impressive career as a television presenter, singer and high-flying ambassador. She even scored an acting role alongside Jessica Mowboy in the Australian TV series The Secret Daughter. More recently, she's been kept busy on the boundary of cricket fields around the world, including the Indian Premier League, the Pakistan Super League and here in Australia for Channel 7. The sport makes its way into her personal life too. She's engaged to Australian cricketer Ben Cutting. Erin was warm and candid as we sat down for a chat on her back deck on a crisp Brisbane morning. I hope you enjoy My 30 Minutes with Erin Holland. Erin, welcome to my 30 minutes. It is a bit of a blast from the past sitting down together. We're actually both Cairns girls. We grew up in Cairns. Did you go to Red Lynch Primary School? No, but my mum taught you and your family or she something did. like that. That's that's the connection there. But I was a freshy kid, so okay. just up the road. Yep. Yeah, your mum was my year five teacher, that's which right. is so random. She's so proud. Every time she sees you on TV, she's like, oh, Kendall, that is her well. I'm like, yes, <laughs> mum, of course, it was all you. <laughs> I feel like I should apologise because I was actually a bit of a rat bag at that time <laughs> of my life. It's when I was 10, I was going through a phase and she was very patient with me. Cairns has a population of about 150,000 people. It, it kind of is a small town. I found the jump from there to Brisbane quite daunting. You moved to Sydney straight after school. What was that like for you? Look, I've always been a kid that just kind of didn't have an issue with being away from home. Like even apparently when I was in grade one or preschool, whatever it was, mum dropped me off my first day of school. Everyone else is crying and hugging their mums and not wanting to go. And I was like, okay, bye mum. And walked off and she goes, you don't even know where you're going. Like, come back here. What? Bleh, what's going on? So I've just always been quite independent in that way. And and home for me is is people. It's not a place. And I think that suits someone like me who's got a bit of a gypsy lifestyle. I, I miss people and I don't really get too attached to, to places as such. So, yeah, big move. But if it's what you have to do to better your career and to make things work, I've always kind of been okay with that. And yeah, just kind of rolled with it. You would have been 17 and you moved to Sydney because you actually were accepted into the Sydney Conservatorium, which is incredible. People don't realise how difficult that is. It's a huge audition process. You actually got a scholarship and went on to study classical voice. You were very talented in high school. You often had these starring roles in all of our musicals, so it was no surprise to anyone that watched you grow up that that's sort of the career you chose to take. But how was that uni experience? Yeah, the conservatorium is a very interesting place. As you said, it is really tough to get into. In my particular year, there's like a major and a minor stream of the performance degree and there was only three majors in the entire course that year. So it was myself and two boys. So I was the only girl in my specific degree at that institution, which was really cool. And it's it's such an interesting place. Classical musicians are a whole other breed. <laughs> I'm happy to go on the record to say. And yeah, it, it was it was a really surreal experience. And, you know, you had an institution where there's only about a thousand people in the entire university. So yeah, I was very, very blessed and very lucky to, to get in there. And that really is what ended me up in Sydney. So I'm very grateful for that because Sydney is definitely where I needed to be to do what I wanted to do. So 
it was yeah, it was it was an amazing experience. I spent four years there, finishing my degree, and then into the big bad world of auditioning for musical theatre, which is yeah, yeah, it's intense. From there, it was a couple of years down the track, but you found yourself competing in Miss World Australia. How do you get into that? And I guess for you, what was the driving force? Driving force was when I finished university, all of a sudden you go, oh my gosh, like how do I actually survive in this industry? How do I get into a show? How do I get an agent? There's so many things that they don't teach you as part of your degree, like with every degree, really. It's not a full born conclusion that you're going to end up in a job no matter what it is that you study. But I really didn't know how to make that next transition into actually becoming a performer in a show. So I was working a million and one jobs. I was doing a lot of promo work, a lot of event work, just bits and pieces work that would enable me the flexibility to audition for a show whenever one would pop up. And I got through to the final round a few shows. Some shows I was looked over in the first round of auditions. I never, ever landed that first gig. And when you go into an audition like a job, you have a CV and it says everything you've done, what you studied, all of that. And on my CV, it said that I studied this. I did these amateur shows at Kenside High School, but that was it. There was not anything really particularly special about me, nothing that probably stood out from the thousands of other people that were auditioning. And I thought, what can I do to make me a little different? And around that time, you know, Jen Hawkins, clearly incredibly successful woman who came from the Miss Universe pageant, Rachel Finch at the time, another North Queensland girl from Townsville doing amazing things post Miss Universe, uh, Jacinta Campbell at the time, now Franklin, also a Queensland girl from Goldie doing wonderful things and all slightly different things. Like the girls have all forged their own path and in a different space and I thought maybe this is just something I can use as a leg up into the industry. Maybe it will make me a little bit more interesting next time I do step in for an audition. So, yeah, I just decided to sign myself up for a pageant and I chose Miss World because the Miss World competition has a talent section and and clearly I was a singer and I thought that's something that maybe other people who are going for this won't be able to do. So that was the thought process behind it really. It was just something else that I could add to my, to my CV that might make me a little bit more interesting next time I stepped into the audition room. Pageant life in itself is a crazy ball game. I don't think people kind of realise unless you're fully there and behind the scenes. You were 24 when you won Miss World Australia, so you get that crown. How does your life shift It's one of those things where overnight you kind of become a bit of a household name because you're thrust into a media circuit the next day doing a lot of promotional work and then you sort of spend a year actually working for Miss World Australia. So in one way your life shifts very quickly overnight but then also you're tied to that brand for a year while still thinking about how you want to bubble your career away once it all comes to an end. What's the pressure like of that when you're just 24? You're probably still trying to figure out who you are. Yeah, it it was a a massive shift. I mean, straight away, the next day, all of a sudden, the organisation said, right, well, you have to move to Melbourne for three months until you go overseas so you can train. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I didn't even consider that. And again, moving for me isn't so much of an issue, but all of a sudden I'm uprooting my life again and, and moving somewhere. And and then, as you said, the next 12 months was a bit of a roller coaster because you then spend one month overseas for the, the competition. I placed top six in the world and actually had a contract as a 
continental queen of Oceania. <laughs> so I was at the beck and call of the international organisation for the next 12 months and they took me overseas four or five times to sing at various charity events that they were putting on. Because so, for those who, who aren't too familiar, Miss World is the best way I can describe it is like Miss Congeniality, the movie, because there's world peace, like the charity component is the biggest part. There's the talent section, there's fitness, there's the question and answer, all of that. But first and foremost, it's a charity organisation. And if you win, you spend the next 12 months travelling the world, attending all of the different charitable um, institutions and, and bits and pieces that the the organisation does with the money that it raises. So I was taken overseas to, to singing sometimes with only a week or two notice that I was going to China or going to America or going to England. So so that I had to be very flexible with that. But the pressure to do something with it as well is always there because at the end of the day, in 12 months' time, there's a new one and you're forgotten. So, yeah, it, it definitely does play on your mind I suppose and and for me as well because it was such a strategic career move to actually do this for a purpose and and to use it to get myself sort of have that leg up into the entertainment industry all of a sudden that whirlwind year has gone and you go wow have I actually made any inroads into what I want to do after because all of a sudden in, in a month's time just say for example when the next one's crowned I'm old news what do you do so I will say that being 24 I was at the upper echelon of the age that you could be. So I did have a few more years maturity on me than your 17, 18 year olds that I was competing against at the international. And I'm very glad that I did have those few years on me because it's a really difficult time. And it's a very difficult competition to navigate when you're away from home in a foreign country competing against 130 other women. There's there's a lot of a lot of stuff that goes into that and, you know, a lot of exhaustion and insecurity and just, you know, being forced to compete even in itself for that longer period of time is quite exhausting. So at least I was a little bit more mature than some of my um, compatriots. I love that you mention insecurity because naturally as women, we, you know, it doesn't matter what we do, you naturally can kind of stare in front of the mirror and pick yourself apart. Um, the competition does have, as you say, it's got a talent element and it's got other things involved. So it's not all about how you look and, you know, they do expect you to have a brain and have opinions, but largely, even in that sense, you're comparing yourself with other people. It must be really tough. It is really tough. And I kind of figured out early on, and and this is not a woe is me, but I wasn't one of the most attractive contestants there. Like you're up against supermodels from Europe, from Asia, from Africa. It's like there are just some of the most stunning women you've ever seen in your life. But for me, I knew my the positive to me and the way that I could stand out was to utilise my talent and use the fact that I could sing and I was could speak fairly well. They were my my talents and they were my strengths. And so I tried to not focus too much on the appearance side of things, which is really hard. Like you said, as as women, we do pick ourselves apart. And I definitely had days where I felt like, God, I can't compete. Like, no, they're not going to want me. Like, look at her. She's amazing. There's like, I don't stand a chance. But one thing I've always been good at is focusing and sort of switching off those outside voices and and realizing that I'm here for a bigger purpose than just to just to win. Social media is quite a big part of pageant life. It's a big part of your life even now. Instagram actually only came about in 2010 and you were winning 
Miss World in 2013. So it's a pretty short gap. And I mean, I don't know what you think, but when I first got Instagram, I'm not sure I was even sure what to do with it. So if you scroll back, it's no so clue. weird. <laughs> it's so weird to see those early posts. A um, hundred hashtags on each photo. You're like, what was I thinking? I know. Hashtag model, hashtag girl. Well, clearly, like, was that necessary? <laughs> <laughs> um, how do you navigate an online presence at the time and even now? I think back in the day as well, Instagram was a much nastier place than it is now. I do think that we have learned to incorporate social media into our lives a, a lot better. And of course, online is still a very negative place for some people. And But we're a lot more educated now than what we were. So I actually found Instagram um, not so much of a, a pleasant space very early on. And because I did the, the tournament, the, the competition, I was at the brunt of that and and luckily when we did do the competition they didn't want us on Instagram to them as you said because Instagram was so new Facebook was their focus so they said we don't want you posting on any other mediums other than your Facebook page which was linked to the International Miss World page and and grow that so but you know a a lot of comments I felt like people were yeah a lot more negative on Instagram years ago and at least we're a little bit more conscious now of the content that we're putting out there people are a little bit more conscious of of what they're saying as well, which is nice. But yeah, it wasn't a nice space for me very early on. I There were often comments like, how did you even win? You look like a transvestite. Are you a man? You're very flat. I'm, I'm not particularly well endowed for <laughs> a pageant girl. So often they were a lot of the comments that I would receive either privately or, or on my photos. So yeah, so, you know, when you have a bad day, at the end of the day, when you come back and look at your account, they are very damaging things to read. You're close to ticking over 400,000 followers, which is yeah. phenomenal. And you've had that beautiful, steady growth of someone who is making huge inroads in entertainment. And, and as a professional, um, you wear many hats now as an ambassador, as a television presenter. You know, you still do the odd bit of singing. Um, you know, you've just got all these other things ticking along on the sides. Talk to me about Instagram as, I guess, an income stream and that concept of what people would deem uh, being influential or being an influencer. It's it's such a hard term because I would never identify as an influencer and I think that's because because I came from a background of I trained as a singer, I've done a bit of acting, I'm doing presenting now, which I absolutely love. For some reason, when someone says influencer, I see that as a negative thing. I'm like, oh, no, I'm not just an influencer. I'm not just creating content for the sake of creating content. And for me, what you see on my channels is a direct reflection of brands that I love, genuinely use, believe in the ethos of and fit the the, the kind of person and the kind of brand, I suppose, that, that I want to be. So... And we never work with anybody, no matter the amount of money. And, and sometimes it is really hard to say no to. Like I'll, I'll be very honest in saying that. Um, but it's just not the right fit and it's not where I want to be in five, ten years' time. So every decision that I've ever made with Instagram and, and social media and the brands that I partner with is always I kind of think, you know, does Erin in the future, does this fit in with her and what she wants to be doing? Or if I get the dream job, which for me is – you know, presenting full-time on TV and I've always said like a David Campbell or a Sonia Kruger has always been my idol because they came from a similar entertainment background and they're now 
doing wonderful things um, on all kinds of um, television programs. Is that something that I would ever see them kind of posting about or working with? No. And 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 that's sort of where I, I envisage and hope to be one day. So it's always a very uh, calculated partnership. Um, so you'll never see anything that um, I'm just posting for the sake of posting because it's a, a good deal. It's, it's only something that I, I genuinely use and love. And I think that's where influences the traditional sense of the word went wrong after a while because all of a sudden it did just become about whatever the amount of money was. If it was good enough, you'd do it. And I don't drink skinny me teas and I don't use a thousand and one skincare brands and I don't wash my hair with that. So it's not genuine and it's not genuinely something that I would use in my life. So I'm not going to post about it. So yeah, I think influencer um, content sort of went astray for a little while there and, and it wasn't genuine. And then now we're so savvy because we're all on Instagram. We're all on social media. I think it's very obvious when something isn't these days. I remember seeing you interviewed after you did win Miss World and they were very quick to ask you, what do you hope to do in the future? And you rattled off a bunch of things, but obviously one of them was that one of your hopes and dreams was to be a television presenter, as you've sort of alluded to with Sonia Kruger and David Campbell. It At the time, I guess a lot of people maybe roll their eyes and think it's a bit cliched. Yep, you've won a beauty pageant. You want to be on TV. It's almost like you have to kind of prove yourself in the years following before people take you seriously in order to reach that goal. Have you felt that way? I'll go on the record of saying I never, ever regret doing the pageant because it has given me the career that I've had. But I also can't say that it hasn't been a bit of a double-edged sword in that, yes, you you won a pageant and now maybe some people who didn't know who you are before now know who you are and you get to meet some of the right people that will help you on your journey in the industry. But you do still have to prove that you have something to offer other than what you look like, which for me was crazy because what I look like played absolutely no part in anything that I did up until this point. I never modelled. I was always known for being a singer or when I was in school I was an academic. I wasn't cool. I was a music geek. I, I was, you know, all, all of those things. So all of a sudden having so much emphasis placed upon my image and when people go, oh, wow, like you can sing, like it was always offensive how shocked they were, and I'm like, and which is not fair because so many of these women, pretty much all of them that win, it's because they have something else to offer. And and if you see the amazing things that so many of these girls have done as a result, it is because they, you know, they have so many talents in in other areas. So yeah, it has been a double edged sword, and having to almost retrain people's perception of you that you you know becoming becoming a model whilst really wonderful career path and very, very difficult if, you know, professional models, it's it's not the an easy industry by any means. But it wasn't the reason why I decided to do the competition and it's taken time, I think, what is it, seven years now since I've done it, to almost train that being the thing that I'm known for out of people's perceptions and say, no, well, I actually am working in TV now finally as a sports presenter for Channel 7, which we love, thanks, Seven, and overseas. And to actually be known for something other than Miss World Australia is amazing. But it has taken a long time to train that that thought out of people, I think, and and sort of say, well, hey, like this is my skill set. And modelling and, and what I looked like was the thing that I, I thought I'd work least in. 
amazing, really. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We saw your first kind of um, interview skills when you hit our screens on Channel 7 for Cricket Over Summer. I was blown away watching you interview these cricket stars. Um, it's it's tough doing an interview on live television at the best of times. It's probably actually a lot more intimidating doing it as a female interviewing sports people. I know I've worked on some tennis coverage and things like that. And there is a real element, even from some people who are playing, that what's this woman actually know about what's going on? I was blown away with your confidence in the game and you are engaged to Ben Cutting. So obviously cricket is a big part of your family home, but how have you found being on the sidelines? Because you haven't just been working for Channel 7. You've been over in India, in Pakistan. You've been doing an incredible amount of sports presenting. How do you find that as a female? Considering I didn't come from a journalism background, at all. It's something that I've learned on the fly. Like my first ever job in sports presenting was for a tournament called the Indian Premier League, which is the most lucrative and the most watched league in the entire world. Like we're talking 800 million people watching a single game. It's it's very, very daunting. And I think as a female who never played the sport, being thrust into that arena of talking to some of the greatest players in the world you do feel pressure to actually know what you're talking about and and I think in sport having had that relationship with Ben and and also hearing his perspective on getting interviewed over the years and and whether or not he enjoyed having to talk to presenters you know at the end of an innings or the end of a game or whatever it is there's nothing worse than being that presenter that goes so how did it feel out there and everyone just rolls (laughs) their eyes at home and I've been guilty of that too before I knew how hard it was criticizing in my head when when you when you watch these presenters going oh that's a question I don't really care about or oh that seems a little bit pointless and then when you're on the other side of the microphone and you're the person that has to come up with the content and, and come up with the you know, the, the questions in the heat of the moment too because in sport you don't get any heads up on who you're going to be speaking to. You don't know the match situation. You don't know. You don't so know how the game's unknowns. going to go. You have no You've... idea how the game's going to go. So there's, yeah, it took a lot of um, trial and error, error within myself coming up with the right formula for me as someone who hadn't played the game, making sure that I was asking good questions, questions that were relevant to the game, questions that, a player would not be would not be too mon- like so mundane that the player wouldn't even really want to answer them. It was yeah, it, w- it was a lot of pressure. And thank goodness my dad made me watch so much cricket when I was younger, and I had been to kind of bounce a couple of ideas off, particularly in the beginning before I went there, because I definitely feel like there is that what do you even know sort of a stigma attached sometimes to to female presenters in sport which is a real shame but but it is another barrier I feel like that we have to have to work through and have to work doubly as hard to make sure that we feel like we belong and and show that we belong and and we know enough to to be there in the first place. I think you're doing a wonderful job in breaking down that barrier it was an absolute joy to watch you over summer and you work alongside some other fantastic females so it's really great to see some strong characters out there and and you have been you know a clip has gone viral of you really kind of grilling Ben as well I mean Ben's not exempt from it so that's always good fun um there's this one clip you really grilled him and were like well play well in Perth or don't come home and 
It's been watched all over the world. And I, I do love that Channel 7 very much encouraged the fact that we don't want you to ignore the fact that Ben is your fiancé. Like that's that's just part and parcel of the game. And Seven have a really great coverage, which is, you know, Big Bash is fun. It's not test cricket. It's supposed to be fun and it's cheeky. And they they really actually, my CJ, my um, producer, executive producer of cricket, texted me because once it became obvious Ben would be player of the match, he said, just have fun. Just go and have fun with it. But but I do feel pressure because I am working in Ben's space now. I've infiltrated his workspace and it, it mustn't be easy for him to have me there sometimes, like on the sideline, visible when he's at his workplace and talking to his colleagues. So I do feel pressure sometimes to make sure that I am doing even better a job so I'm not embarrassing him. <laughs> At work, I suppose, it is like another layer. That's probably a healthy thing, though. I guess it's just another thing that will force you to improve your performance. So that's also kind of cool. Ben proposed last year, um, 2019. So you've had a year, I guess, since that time. Have you been able to set a date? It's kind of funny times at the moment to be trying to plan a wedding. But have you zeroed in on a time when you'd like to get married? So I am a COVID casualty. Unfortunately, my wedding was supposed to be in June. Uh, so that's clearly no longer happening because we've got these restrictions in place. Of course, we're filming, the, we're recording this at the time of, of COVID restrictions being 10 people or less at a wedding. So that was absolutely not going to happen because I had about 150 on the guest list. But the hard part is now because of the cricket schedule being unknown, because my career is very unknown in terms of when I'll be actually working again, we can't really plan a date yet because we don't know how much his, hopefully both of our schedules will be affected with Big Bash at the end of the year. So it may be a whole 12 months time. Of course, that might not even happen because Ben plays so many of these international tournaments overseas and and I'm lucky enough to get a gig in many of them too. We really have no idea what the future holds as a result of COVID. So at the moment, it's just in limbo, which is really sad. It was was a really tough decision. That's devastating. Was it? Was it well known? You were planning on getting married in June. You had to keep that very private because obviously you don't want um, all that publicity that kind of follows you around naturally on such a special day. We did choose to keep it private. We asked all of our guests to just not mention it in conversation, <laughs> just to try and keep it as private as possible. So, yeah, it was it was disappointing and, and kind of weird in a way because I hadn't told anyone outside of who was coming that it was coming up. People go, oh, so when's the wedding? And you kind of like... Ugh. <laughs> mm, very internal breakdown um yeah so it was it was a really tough decision to make because we had to make it that end of March knowing that things were progressing badly and that it probably wasn't going to be able to happen that far ahead but Ben the eternal optimist was going it'll be fine that's months away you never know and I'm here going yeah babe I really don't think this is going anywhere anytime soon like I love your optimism but I just feel like this is probably not going to be possible. And thank goodness we did make that decision. But anyone else who's been married or is getting married knows how full up the wedding calendar is at the best of times, let alone when we have a huge chunk of our year taken away. So even finding a new date now will be very difficult, trying to get everyone together on the same date free, all of your vendors together free. It, um, it won't be an easy task. So... Yeah, it's pretty crushing when you spend the last 12 months 
gearing up for a wedding and planning things. And let's face it, I did most of it myself. Um, <laughs> ben wasn't helpful, really? <laughs> no, no. Um, yeah, he's not overly interested in, in bridal stuff. I'll, I'll, I'll give him that. But no, he's, yeah, it was just a, a tough decision to be made and it will be even tougher to try and reschedule. So, yeah, not looking forward to trying to figure out when that will be with our schedules. What does it mean for your personal life too if perhaps say you were planning on having kids, you wanted to get married first. If hypothetically you have to push your wedding out by a year, does it kind of push your whole personal life calendar out? Yeah. And, and I'm someone who was never really desperate to want to be a mother anytime soon. Ben, on the other hand, is clucky me cluck cluck. He would have a kid tomorrow if I let him. Uh, but for me, with my work plan, I only feel like I'm just starting to get to where I want to be. So I always say I kind of wish I was at this stage in my career but I was five years younger so I didn't have to kind of think about the biological clock that's ticking and it is a really prevalent thing. Like I'm 31 now so when the wedding gets pushed back 12 months, you're 32 when you get married and I never wanted to have a kid straight away. I think getting married is a completely different dynamic and you need to figure out who you are with each other in in the new state. So I never wanted to have kids until at least a year or two years after that. So now all of a sudden you're 34 and you start trying and it does, it does really kind of push out, you, you know, your whole plan. And then I never know what my career will be doing at the time and whether or not I feel like I can take that time out to explore motherhood. So it is, it is really difficult and a really confusing um, time for me in general <laughs> at the moment. Absolutely. And because of coronavirus, so much of your work has been brought to a standstill. We're almost out of time, but I guess I want to ask like what's still on your list of dreams? You probably can't practically be planning things in a sense of what you know is going to happen in, in the next year because none of us know what the future holds. But I guess what are the dreams still in your heart that you really want to see come to fruition long term? When you've been the eternal freelancer, actually having regular work is so exciting. And for the first time in my entire life, and as I said, I'm 31 now, so I've I've grinded for years getting towards this goal of of being on TV. Or for me, it was always performing, and I didn't realize back when I was younger that it would be TV presenting as such. It used to be wanting to be on Broadway, but I'm still in front of a camera performing in a way. So. I've, I've managed to get towards what the dream was. But for me, having a relatively full-time gig on a program or on a show that's that's on TV, that's that's what the goal is. And, you know, sport has been a fantastic foray into TV presenting. And because I didn't go through uni or through journalism or through a traditional path to, to get there, I am learning so much on the fly. I'm, I'm now hosting bits and pieces overseas and, and for seven with the cricket, I'm learning how to be the broadcaster in, in a in a setup. So I'm learning all of these skills at the moment and I'd love to be able to utilize them as um, you know, the anchor of a show or the, the main presenter of a show in the future. So that's still the main goal. Of course it's incredibly hard to get to that point, but um, you know, really grateful to Seven for the opportunity to be a part of a few shows. Um, I'm also on a new show on Seven coming up in the future, which is exciting. We, um, because of COVID, we don't know when we actually start airing, but 
there, there are still a few more things to come that I've, I've already done, which is weird because they haven't made it to TV yet, which is really exciting. But, but that is the goal, that is to actually have regular work on TV, on a show, um, and fingers crossed that, you know, we get through this incredibly difficult time. And, and then in the meantime, the, the brand ambassadorships and the things that keep me busy in my day-to-day that just provide me a wonderful variety in my in my life is is yeah the goal just sort of keep that happening and hope it starts up again once this difficult time is over. What would success mean to you? What would be personal success? It doesn't have to be career based, but when you were to consider that you feel successful, you feel rewarded and wholesome and healthy. What does that look like? So I've always said for me. There are three big pillars in life. There's there's the loves of your life, there's your work life, and there's your passion, what drives you, your hobbies, the things that give you enjoyment. And luckily for me, two of mine are one and the same. Like I've actually managed to make my hobby, my passion, my work. So spending a lot of time curating my career, furthering my career, working genuinely gives me so much joy. So for me, it's it's just being able to work each day in the career path that I chose, that that's a real win for me because when I was 23, just before Miss World, I genuinely didn't know if I'd ever be able to make a, a lasting career out of this industry. So, so just working hard, keeping at it. I don't think I'll ever feel like I've succeeded in a way because there is always something else to do and this industry is a bit of a never-ending mouse wheel in a way like because even if you land the job you got to keep the job and then when the show ends what's next but that's okay for me because I'm someone who doesn't deal with monotony very well so just continuing to actually work in this industry is um, a big success for me and have the people I love around me there to see it. It's wonderful well Erin Holland thank you so much for sitting down with me for my 30 minutes we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.